On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the budget. A lot of money being spent. A lot of money. Money that if, depending on your age, you will be paying for probably for the rest of your life. So is it going, and beyond, is it going to be worthwhile? Is the budget helpful? We're going to figure it out. We're also talking about Mars because, you know, cool stuff is happening on Mars and yet we're not even paying attention, which says something about how bored we have become of anything but the truly unbelievable, even though this is pretty unbelievable. And Don Robertson will join us to talk about all kinds of stuff as he does every Monday. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Well, I suspect you were probably paying attention or have heard something about the budget that was handed down by Christia Freeland, the new finance minister today. Big, 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 big numbers. I mean, unprecedented numbers since the Second World War and maybe even bigger than that, maybe not per capita or relative, but big, big, big numbers. I'm not even going to introduce anything further than that. Let me just bring in Ian Lee, who's the Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, last time we chatted, we were discussing some stuff with finances, and I said, next time we talk will be the day of the budget, and lo and behold, here we are. Um, We have a budget book that is like two inches thick, containing over $100 billion in in new spending, and I'm looking at this thinking, I guess... Fiscal conservatism is a quaint notion now. It's a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I, I was in the virtual uh, budget lockup, um, signed letters of undertaking and so forth, and so I was given the documentation at uh, 9 a.m. And I started to go through it, and I can promise you I got, I read uh, a little over 50%. It was wow. Um, 136 pages. I read the speech uh, before she gave it and the all the chapters. And then I did look at the at the tables where the actual juicy data is, you know, GDP and and interest rate forecasts and and that sort of thing. But I'll step back uh and do the big picture. I, I because this is my unique take. I was reading through the first 30 pages and she was basically saying the economy uh, uh, is booming back it's it's just doing gangbusters and and uh and she had all kinds of graphs there showing this by the way the gdp is just snapped back and i give her credit she acknowledged at several occasions in the first 30 pages you know last summer we underestimated she said the resilience of the economy they did by the way they did <laughs> and then she said last fall we underestimated it and we did again at the beginning of this year because the economy keeps coming back stronger much stronger than what the government's been saying it's doing. And so I thought, hey, this is good news. And then she almost on a, on a, on a dime pivoted, said, now we've got to spend a lot of money because things are very, very bad. Uh, Scott, I was getting whiplash because on the one hand, she was saying gangbuster growth, very strong. And then she turns around and basically says exactly the opposite. You know, it, it's talking about a saying two things that completely contradict one another. Well, Christia Freeland, Christia Freeland, Ian, to your point, is not the first politician who has described a crisis as an opportunity that should not be wasted. And I mean, it was uh, Rahm Emanuel, I believe, with Bill Clinton's cabinet that really coined the phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste. But she has described this publicly as an opportunity. Is that smart as a politician that you see the opening? Oh, we're going to get Ian back. We lost Ian there for a second. Uh, we're talking about whether this is a, you know, Christian Freeland has talked about this being an opportunity. 
And, you know, there is a question about whether or not a good politician will say, you know what, we've got the opportunity here to bring in things we want to do, programs we want to engage with. Uh, we, we have Ian back. So, Ian, I'm just saying that, that it's yeah. been said by many politicians at times, never let a good crisis go to waste. Is she being a smart politician by saying we have a chance here because everyone is sort of flustered? We have a chance to bring in what we want. Or is that a cynical move to say we're going to spend a lot of money here because we can and no one seems to mind right now? Scott, I, I interpreted it differently. And and as I said, I sat there all day from nine o'clock to four o'clock reading this thing. I, I didn't get up. I didn't go jog around the block. And it is gargantuan, not just the dollars, but when I went through it, I thought, you know, I can't think of a single interest group that wasn't promised something. I mean, everybody, she threw everything and at everybody in Canada. And, and so that tells me that this was not about build back better, not at all. This was about, this was a very political budget fair enough they're the government and they're preparing for an election and i'm not predicting when but i thought reading it through i mean there were things there that had absolutely nothing to do with covid or the pandemic um yes there were measures there to deal with covid for sure uh but there were all kinds of commitments and promises and spending initiatives they just went on and on and on, I mean, I, my eyes were glazing over at all of these uh, interest groups and, and, and special, you know, obviously demands some groups had made for some of the most obscure things. And that's why it was over 700 pages. And I've been in the lockup every year from 2008 until now, and I've never seen a budget document this long. So it tells me that this is a, uh, a uh, an election campaign document. But... The, before it makes before anyone thinks I'm too negative, I mean there was some good news here. It was negative good news. That may sound really controver- uh, you know contradictory, but there was no uh, universal basic income announced, which is brutally expensive, over 100 billion a year. There was no universal pharmacare, which I strongly oppose, uh, giving uh, free drugs to wealthy uh, high income doctors and and to professors and so forth. So that wasn't in there, and that's brutally expensive, according to the PBO, 40 billion a year. The, you know, no wealth tax. So it was a, it was a, um, there were things in there that they didn't do that would have been unbelievably expensive. And they did have in there, as we all expected, the one big ticket uh, on uh, daycare. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The thing I think, Ian, that is probably going to be the headline of this budget is $30 billion towards a national Childcare, that, that is going to be the thing that Christia Freeland and the Liberals would want this budget to be known as, correct? The childcare budget? I, I agree with you completely. I think she is not only a bet the farm, to use an old slang phrase, I, I think that, um, she, I mean, she said so repeatedly, I promise you, I give you my word as a mother, she said, as a minister, as the first woman minister of finance. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm not, I'm not criticizing this. She really staked her reputation on this. I actually think as a sidebar, I mean, she's obviously very ambitious. She's a very capable, very intelligent individual. And I think she's anybody who gets to that level in the hierarchy of politics, the Minister of Finance, second most powerful job in Canada. Uh, I think you've got ambitions. And there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. Perfectly legit. And I think that she's she's decided this is going to be her signature, her signature card, her, the thing she's going to go for. 
I think if, if to that number, and just very quickly, I don't want to belabor this, and I do support uh, uh, child care, um, even though, you know, I'm okay, there's a bit of sour grapes. When I raised my two children in the 80s and 90s, I didn't get a penny from the government, but okay, okay, that was then. This is now. We're in different times. I understand that. Um, there's two criticisms uh, that can be made. Uh, number one, they unfortunately, the liberals uh, uh, have a deep commitment to uh, universality. And I've argued repeatedly universality is just, just a, a terrible, terrible thing. Because universal, universal daycare or universal pharmacare means giving free daycare or cheap, cheap subsidized daycare or free drugs to high-income people. Universal means everybody, not those who need help the most. It means medical doctors making a half a million a year will get $10 a day daycare. What? It means professors who are high-income will be getting $10 a day daycare. That's crazy. We, the Quebec government went down that road 10 years ago, and they finally pulled it back and made it targeted to target those who need help. So that's the first criticism. The second criticism, very quickly, is it requires that they're proposing to pay 50% of the total cost, and the provinces will pay the other 50%. Well, the provinces are broke. Yeah, that was. I was going to ask you that because that's for her to stake her word on this is a, it's a risk because they do have to negotiate with the provinces. And one of the things that was brought out from this is the provinces have been begging for more transfer payments to pay for health care, and there was nothing about that in this budget. So you've got provinces that are having to spend billions more on health care, and now being told, oh, by the way, you also are going to have to pay billions more on child care, and we're not going to help you out. That's a that's a risky word to be. That's a risky thing to be banking your word on, because I think the provinces are going to blanch at this, unless the Uh, federal government gives them more. I'm in complete agreement because of the numbers. Uh, The PBO, very distinguished, nonpartisan, parliamentary budget office, they crunch the numbers. I know some of the people that work there, you know, they're real hardcore mathematicians, statistician types, using public data. They've said that most of the provincial governments are financially unsustainable in the medium term. That's a mm. scary statement. I mean, Newfoundland and Labrador, as we speak, is insolvent. The, the bond markets will not buy their bonds. That's what that means in plain English. So where I'm going with this is I'm agreeing with you. The idea when they need to pour billions more into health care, the provinces, because they run the health care system, they're responsible, and into the long-term care homes because we know there's a disaster there. And then the government's coming on saying, oh, by the way, you know those billions you wanted for health care? Well, we're not giving you any. And and we want you to pick up 50% of the tab of a program that doesn't yet exist that's going to be really, really costly. And I think she made, as I said, two mistakes. Universality is far more expensive than when you target. Right. And PBO, PBO has documented that. A targeted pharmacare is far less costly than universal pharmacare. Targeted daycare, far less costly. So she could have made it more affordable by targeting it. And secondly, I'm very much with Andrew Coyne on this one. Instead of setting up an elaborate bureaucracy with the provinces, why don't you just give it to the, to the parents? You got a child? You need daycare? You're, well, you don't even have to say you need daycare. You got a child between one and four years of age? We will give you the money yeah. each year. Yeah. We'll call it the Canadian Daycare Subsidy Account. And, and we'll save give it billions. Below a certain income. Whatever yeah, and save, save billions. Year, whatever. 
Yeah, all the money in the staff um, that would that you could be saving from that. One more thing, because we're short on time, and I, I got so many things I want to ask you about. But yeah. you talked about sustainability with the provinces. You know, th- th- this budget says that we've got this 154 billion deficit this year after 354 last year, yeah. but it's going to keep going down. By 2026, we're going to be down to a 30 billion dollar deficit. But I'm looking at this going. Maybe you're adding all these programs, and down the road we may still get the universal. Uh, pay or the universal pharmacare or whatever else. I don't, if you're building programs that have to be paid for year after year, I fail to see how we're going to get that deficit way, way down. Well, you and I, me both. Um, when I saw those numbers in the lockup and, and it's dropping 200 billion next year, I said, yeah, that, yeah. And I've got some swampland in Florida that I can tell you is on, on prime land on the beach and I can sell it to you for a big price. I just cannot believe that the government's going to drop 200 billion in one, 12 months, and in four years from now, three years from now, they're going to drop all the way down from $350 billion today in the hole to 25 or $50 billion. Like, this is the realm of fantasy. This is like buying a lottery ticket. Well, you know, if I buy a lottery ticket and if I win, I, I'll be rich. Yeah, you will, but the problem is you won't win the lottery. You know, and, and so it was based on a wing and a prayer and hopes that I cannot see uh, coming about because there's so much built-in spending in that budget today that I, I just can't see it dropping down. Uh, it, it's going to go down as people return to work, but I just, I'm very skeptical. It's going to well, drop by those magnitudes. We got to run. I mean, one of the things that they didn't talk about, because who wants to talk about it if you have an election coming up is taxes going up. And I kind of look at it and say, if you're going to get, start whittling that deficit at some point, we're going to have to give something back. And I, there's usually one way that happens because I know they don't want to cut anything and that's going to be taxes, but nobody wants to talk about new taxes when we have an election that could be coming. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business, very much appreciated as always. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. So many other things. It's 700 pages. How how do you do that in one segment? Uh, We don't. We'll be talking about this for a few days. Bill tomorrow morning, I'm sure. Bill and Scott Thompson tomorrow afternoon will also have lots on it. So stay tuned to CHML to get more and more and more on this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. NASA flew a helicopter on Mars today. Think about that. NASA from Earth flew a helicopter on Mars. Now, you may not have heard much about this. There was a lot of other news going on today, but that speaks in some ways to just how, I don't know if the word is blasé or except I don't know what the word is, but how we've come toward incredible, incredible things, especially as it revolves around space flight and other things around space. If you had said 30, 40 years ago that NASA had flown a helicopter on Mars, probably the entire planet would be glued to their television set to watch this. Now, maybe you go and check Twitter to see if there's a 10 second video and then you get on with the rest of your day. I want to bring in Dr. Jesse Rogerson. He's an astrophysicist, a prof- assistant, associate assistant professor, pardon me, at York University. We love having him on to talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, Jesse, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me back. Well, I, I got thinking about this today because, I, again, I know with the budget and other things going on, there's lots of things to distract us. But it got me thinking about what would really have to be done to really crank up the excitement level for people if 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 flying a helicopter on mars is about the ninth most important thing for most people in their day 
I, I don't know what, what space people can do. I mean, I suppose maybe landing people on the moon or definitely landing on Mars, but is there really anything we can do to excite people at this point? Well, you know, um, I think that what, what's a really interesting point about that is um, it speaks to the overwhelming um, uh, presence of news today. And, and, I, and I'm really pointing towards the pandemic. So it, the pandemic is no joke, right? This is, it is permeating every single thing we do daily. It affects everything we do. It, it affects how you shop. It affects the family members you see. It affects how you go to work. It affects your health care. And we live in that all the time and it's news daily and it's it's hard and then you look at um uh, people people are pushing themselves through that but then you have these incredible things still happening on a daily basis uh, nasa engineers landed back in february a rover on mars um, the most complicated rover ever created and along with it went this little helicopter to do this technological demonstration all of those scientists, all those engineers are also living through this insane pandemic and are able to make something like this happen. I, I think we can, I think I guess what I could say is it's, it's not surprising that stuff like this might get missed a little bit. Um, but if you do get onto Twitter or you do get onto Instagram or you get, do get onto YouTube, you'll see a really, really happy group of nerds just loving every single image and every single video that's coming down from Mars. And, and I, you know, that, that part I agree with, but at the same time, I'm looking going, you know, if you go on Twitter right now, it seems as though what's trending, more people are clicking and clicking and refreshing Twitter to see if Zach Hyman's knee is going to be okay for the Maple Leafs than to see <laughs> about a helicopter. Yeah. But, but we, it says something though about how, as I've said, we seem to take some extraordinary achievements almost for granted now. They've become seemingly commonplace to us. I would agree with that, um, especially when it comes to space, um, space technology. It, it kind of blends into the background. It's part of our everyday life, like GPS and Google Maps and, and uh, communication stuff, like uh, the satellites that we have that make our world run are blended into our lives. You, you step out and you drive to work or, uh, you know, you go to the, the grocery store, you're, all, you're, rel- you're checking the weather, you know, you're making calls, you're, you're, that's all, it's just part of life. And so it's, it's blending in. And um, even if, when scientists are doing these incredible things, and if you're wondering how you, how you get the conversations to the forefront, one is to do things that have never been done before. And that would be something like fly a helicopter. But another way to do it is to get the humans involved. When you get mm. human like boots on the ground on the moon, boots on the ground on Mars, or, or doing some records in space or something like that, um, that's how you really get the conversations to the fore. I'm not sure this is a fair question to ask you because you, I mean, as brilliant as you are, you're not sitting around the NASA table discussing this with them, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> One of the things that I found particularly most incredible about what happened today, and even for a, a schmo like me who doesn't understand anything about this, is it even if I send an email or a text or something through whatever system they have to Mars, it takes minutes at least to arrive. How do you fly a helicopter when anything you do to try and change course or whatever is going to take minutes from the moment that you're asking it to do it. It seems like that's a destined for a crash kind of situation. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's a similar technology that we would rely on for, say, something like driverless cars, right? So Mars is hundreds of millions of kilometers away. As a result, the amount of time it takes for a message to get there is multiple minutes, could be five to ten minutes, depending um, on the time of year. And, and so what you need to do is when you build your helicopter or you build your rover or whatever, 
you have to build in it the ability to make decisions. So when the helicopter lifts off, it flew to about three meters high. As it was lifting off the ground, spinning up its rotors, it needs to decide, okay, what's the temperature? What's the pressure of the air right now? Is there a wind gust? Am I going to drift sideways? Am I going to get pushed up higher? Is there a dust devil that's going by? All of these things are getting factored in, and it's doing automatic adjustments so that nobody needs to be sitting at a joystick moving, pointing the helicopter in certain positions or certain directions. The, the helicopter is doing it for itself. And then it, it, it hovered for uh, about 30 or 40 seconds, and then it brought itself back down with its camera pointing down. It can, point, it can figure out where it wants to land. So it's all autonomous. And it's, it's another one of those technology that, that is starting to pop up in a lot of different places, uh, teaching computers to act for themselves so that they can the, handle these kinds of situations. The computers are going to take over eventually. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get to something else in a second, but um, Jesse, I know that they said this was the first flight on Mars. That was part of what the big deal was about this. They even, I think I read, they put a tiny piece of the Wright brothers plane in the mini helicopter when they sent it up there. But am I being too specific or too whatever when I say this wasn't the rover that landed on Mars? Wouldn't that have been considered the first flight on Mars? Um, well, it's, that's a good question. Very good question. This is more, this is about powered and controlled flight. So what, what the lander was doing when, when it dropped Perseverance on is that it, was, it, did a, uh, it used aero braking. So it came into the top of the atmosphere and it used the atmosphere to slow down. Then it had a parachute. And then it used um, retro rockets to slowly bring itself down to the surface. But it, it's not a technology that you could uh, pick up, uh, like take off, fly around, set down, uh, take off again, fly around, set down. That idea of being able to do what a helicopter or an airplane can do as opposed to what a rocket can do. Those are, that's the difference between the two. Um, so flight has happened on Mars before, but not powered and controlled flight. Is, that's the main difference. All right. And one of the things that also, in addition to the distance from Earth, so we can't really control this very easily, one of the other real challenges is the atmosphere of Mars is much thinner. So there's not, it's more difficult for a propeller. I mean, with air, there's something that the propellers can lift off with. It's much more difficult on Mars. That I understand. What I don't understand is how do you simulate that on Earth? Because I'm sure they tested this thing. Can you create a enclosed space or something with thinner atmosphere so you could test this before it went? Or was this a total guess of how it was going to work? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really good question too. And it's both. Well, it's not guessing, but it's estimating and practicing. And like, it's crazy. The atmosphere on Mars is 1% the density and lift is entirely created by air here. So the less that you have, the harder it is. In fact, the, ro the rotors on this helicopter spin faster than the helicopter rotors that we use here on Earth because on Earth, we have so much air to push on, but on Mars, there's much less, so they need to spin faster. Anyway, I digress. The way you do this is you can create huge vacuum chambers where you can reduce the pressure inside. You could take a vacuum chamber and suck out all of the air here on Earth and, and make the pressure the correct pressure. Uh, and th there is one other variable that Mars has different, and that is the gravity. So Mars has about 40% the gravity that we do, which makes it a little easier to take off. And so you have to balance the, the amount of how fast your, your rotors need to spin, how big your rotors need to be with the amount of gravity you have to fight. And you can simulate all of those on Earth as best you can. You can also um, uh, calculate what you need to do based on our understanding of 
uh, atmospheric uh, physics and uh, gravitational physics. So well, when you say you, when you say well, you yeah. can, yeah, when you say you can, I can't. I'm glad there are <laughs> smart math people who can do this because that is, um, I mean, it's remarkable the kind of things. And I've said this from way back, even you know, well, not even, but with the moon landing and everything else, it's just it's stunning the the calculations and that these things then work out. That to me is the biggest shock of this, and it shouldn't be a shock. But well, I, to, w- one of the things you want to remember is that all the stuff that happens before we get to this moment, like um, when you say you go, you have a project in your house and you, you take a couple of weekends and you plan it out and you, you write it, you sketch out everything you're going to do. And then the next weekend you do it. And it takes you a couple of weeks to do this project. These people have been working on this for six or seven years, sitting in labs, doing calculations, doing all the things you need to do to try something that's never been done before. It's sure. And but Jesse, the problem with that is, and I think that I'm probably not alone with this, you or me or someone else may do that plan for the project at our house, but how often do those plans exactly match how we end up having to do something? And the difference is I can adjust when I'm at home. If my, you know, if I have to cut something a quarter inch longer or whatever, I can do that. I can't do that to something that's in Mars. Once it's gone, I have had to figure it out precisely before I send it. You know, it's funny, um, in, in, in terms of physical engineering, you're right. But in terms of soft engineering, really what I mean is the, the programming that goes into this uh, helicopter, you can fix it. In fact, back on, what was it, the 12th or the 13th, I forget the, the day, earlier this uh, last week, they were planning to do the liftoff of this helicopter and realized they had a software issue. They debugged it. They uploaded new software through like the 300 million kilometers to get to Mars, downloaded it onto the onto the helicopter through the rover, and patched it and fixed it. So they are, they are able to do a little bit of fine tuning, uh, even from so far away. It is um, it is it is it is it blows my mind because <laughs> I just I can't fathom it. Uh, we never even got to the other part, the other story. Maybe we'll do this one in the next few days sometime. But um, Elon Musk and SpaceX just want a contract to build rockets that will take man to the man and woman now uh, to the moon again. Um, they're saying now as early as 2024, we only have 20 seconds, but is that in any, do you think that's in any way realistic that three years from now we could be back on the moon? It's yeah. Yeah. It's maybe feasible. I would bet that it's going to slip a little bit uh, in it. I don't think it'll be 2024. It'll be close, but not that close. That see that may be as much as the moon. We've been there and done that. I still think, as, as you say, boots on the ground. That may be when people get excited again, when we can tune in now without a fuzzy, grainy tv set if we can see a high definition landing on the moon that may be when people get excited again and we're going to have some canadians they're not going to land on on the moon but in the next couple of years we're going to have at least one canadian fly around the moon um mm. and so that'll have high, a bunch of high def images from really really close to the moon so like maybe 100 or 200 kilometers off the surface so like that's a pretty pretty awesome stuff to look forward to the canadian astronauts have to feed some bad poutine to the astronauts who are supposed to land take all of them out with food poisoning so only the canadians are healthy and ready to go don't kill them just you know make them sick for a few days so the canadians have to go on the moon that's my plan i don't know if it'll be accepted (laughs) dr jesse rogerson we always love having you on thanks for taking a few minutes today no problem thanks for having me you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml let me bring in Don Robertson, who is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and the 2014 Dundas Citizen of the Year, which will be repeated in 2021. How are you this evening, sir? All set. I'm ready. 
braced for snow? I can't wait. We get no. it once in a while, right? We got spoiled early, pretty nice in March and early April, but it, it can happen, and that's okay because it's not going to stay. It's going to be gone. You're going to be able yeah. to cut the grass right after the snowfall. It happens every year, doesn't it? Well, I mean, our neighbors, some of our neighbors put out their patio stuff the other week and I said, no, we're going to, we will get a snow in April. And for this time I was right. It's just, we'll wait. And once this is done though, spring is here. That's why you don't plant the garden before the 24th of May weekend. Because you're going to get the frost. The news that I mentioned, and I want to ask you about this, Don, the news that I just suggested there when I was about to bring you in here, uh, said it last hour, but it just came out in the last few minutes that uh, Zach Hyman, a lot of people have been hitting refresh on their Twitter to find out what's going on. He had a knee injury last night against Vancouver. Uh, two weeks, roughly, give or take, he's going to be out with a sprained MCL. A lot of Leaf fans breathing a sigh of relief because he really has become a key part of this team. And a lot of people were a little panicky that he may be, may be gone for the year. That was his surgically repaired knee, but uh sprain MCL two weeks. So everyone can live and survive and whatever else. But Don, does it surprise you understanding where this guy came from? And you know, I mean, the Hamilton Red Wings is a good organization or was, and they produced a bunch of guys that went on to play in the pros, Cam Talbot and Spencer Abbott and others that went on to, well, and, and um, uh, 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 Matt Carey and uh, I mean, there's other ones, but does it surprise you understanding where he came from, what a big deal Zach Hyman is now? I don't think so. Uh, I think he was a late bloomer. <clears throat> you know, he's a big guy and he got better and better and better as he played. So I, you know, I don't think that you can underestimate the uh, tier two junior hockey system and Canada and some of the people that rep, you know, it, uh, it, it sends out, but the, the guys that go the university route generally take a little longer to come around. The ones that are 16 years old, you know, and then go on and play in the OHL, it's a little quicker acceleration. Um, but no, I'm not, not at all. There's a couple of things I'm surprised about that knee on knee, but I'll get to that when you're done. Well, you know, I'll I'll admit that I am a little surprised because I covered that team and I, I saw a bunch of games. And I mean, Zach Hyman was the best player on that team. But, you know, there was a guy who used to be a columnist at the Brantford Expositor named Ted Bear, who was a wonderful man. He's passed away now. He's been gone for a few years. Um, one of the great underappreciated, kind of not well-known sports writers in this country. He was way better than his name recognition um, suggests. And he'll tell you the story that when Wayne Gretzky was a young kid, he didn't think that Wayne Gretzky was going to become anything. Now, I'm not comparing Zach Hyman to Wayne Gretzky, and I'm not suggesting that uh, there's a lot of similarities there at all. But I figured that if Ted Bear could whiff, and he was a great sports writer and an astute guy, if he could whiff on Wayne Gretzky, I don't feel quite as bad about whiffing on Zach Hyman by th when I watched him never thinking there's a guy who not only is going to play in the NHL, but is going to become a star and a key part of a team in the NHL. But sure enough, he did. So good for him. Well, and God bless Ted Bear. As you know, I knew Ted for decades, and it's just a wonderful guy and a great writer. Um, <clears throat> but I would I would put uh, Zach Hyman not as the Toronto one of the Toronto Maple Leafs' best players, but I would say he is one of their most important players. Now, it's a fine line because he does things that a lot of people just can't do. 
He's big, he's strong, he knocks people down, he goes to the front of the net, and he makes room for the key players. So like I say, he's not, you know, they have a lot of guys that are very skillful. But when it gets down to the end of it, um, I'm not all that interested in William Nylander's talent. When there's a couple minutes to go, I'm worried, I'm more interested in Zach Hyman being out on the ice and some of the veteran guys. So, you know, not the fanciest, but boy, I'll tell you, a lot of Leaf fans, they were right if they were concerned about Zach Hyman because he is uh, one of the most important players and a free agent at the end of the year, and they better figure out where they're going to get the dough from. Well, so the game last night, he gets hit with a knee on knee and the guy who, who clipped him, Edler, is not known as a dirty player, but you know, lots of guys who aren't dirty players have done something dirty at one point in their life. I don't think we slap the label of cheap player or dirty player on someone for having made a bad decision. It's when it becomes a pattern. Nonetheless, Don, before anyone knew what his injury was going to be or what the severity of it was. The NHL had a hearing and gave Edler two games as a two-game suspension. And it always these things always make me wonder, does the NHL's discipline group get it right when they do these kind of things? Because a lot of people would say, look, we don't know what the severity of this injury is at this point. Maybe they should have waited till after. Maybe it shouldn't have anything to do with the outcome. Maybe, 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 maybe. But it seems that more often than not, people are unsatisfied with the NHL's discipline committee. And I don't know if that's just because it's natural to be that way or if it's because they get it wrong a lot. Well, what happens if he only misses two shifts? It's the same hit. It's the same intent. What if Hyman's just got a bad bruise, limps around a bit today and plays the next game, plays Tuesday, right? I mean, what is, is it based on the injury or is it based on intent and how dirty it is? No, well, that's the problem. Game and you could, uh, that's the problem, though, isn't it, Don? Because because I, I agree with you. I agree that it should be based on the act, not on the outcome. And yet we see guys get suspended because someone has been hurt, or we see guys then, in this case, get suspended before we know if the guy's been hurt. And it doesn't seem to be that there's any kind of continuity to this or consistency. Yeah, no, and that's it's it's been an argument since suspension started. And it's never going to go away. I mean, it. Uh, I mean, you and I talked before. You, you've contemplated should the player that uh, that uh, created the injury that, that uh, in this instance created the attack, should he sit out as long as Iman? I mean, that's always an interesting observation and conversation, right? But it doesn't always work out exactly the way it should because sometimes guys hit and you think, well, that wasn't that bad. And then the guy's out for two months. And sometimes you see a guy get hammered and doesn't miss a shift, and the guy got a four-minute penalty. Sometimes they should be suspensions. Here's what I can't believe. And I know, I know, uh, I grew up in a different era and refereed in a different era, and I know the game's changed, but I cannot believe that if one of my most important players got need like that, and I was on the bench, and absolutely nobody went after that player from Vancouver. I wouldn't care if he got a 20-minute penalty. I would have had somebody out there to either rearrange his chicklets or assuredly knock his block off or get beat up trying. What an absolute insult to Zach Hyman 
that they just said, oh, that was too bad. I mean, I can't believe the game's changed that much. I mean, I know that there's no fighting anymore in the game. I think it's part of the game. And I know I'm a dinosaur, but for one of your most important players to get hammered knee on knee and the other guy skate around like he's at a ballet and nobody went near him. I think it's atrocious. And when I saw it, I started thinking, I'm not sure the Toronto Maple Leafs can win in the playoffs. Because if they won't back up one of the most important players, what kind of a team have they got? Somebody should have come off the bench or something. It's just awful. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the coming off the bench, I mean, we that's like 10 games automatically. So I can understand nobody does that, especially in a short season. And nobody wants to miss that amount of time. Uh, as far as the guys who were on the ice, I'm a little surprised by that. And here's why I'm surprised. Not that fighting is gone from the game, but we hear players all the time complain about the NHL's discipline committee not handling itself correctly. And so to me, that's why fighting existed in the game to begin with. That's why, to me, the reason fighting has been in hockey as long as it has is because the discipline, whoever's doing it, and it's changed many times over the years, the players don't believe that the discipline a guy is going to get from the league matches up to what he should get, that it's too light. And so we have to police ourselves. And, you know, it, what would have happened now if the NHL had said, yeah, you know what, it was, it was not great, but we'll just give him a $5,000 fine. And then if Hyman had been out for the year with any, then are you going to send someone on the ice to beat someone else up? What's the point? Uh, I just, it, to me, it, you have to fit, you have to fix the NHL's discipline setup so that the players can truly believe that when something like this happens, it's going to be dealt with properly. I don't think, I don't know whether I think two games was sufficient. Um, you know, I think that maybe if Vancouver had not just missed all this time with COVID and people weren't feeling badly for them, maybe he gets more. I don't know. But, uh, you know, if you had the discipline group as a hanging judge that said, when you do something wrong, we are going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. I don't think you need fighting in the game then because the players can believe that the league is going to take care of it. Well, the, the league, the league never used to, right? when it was fighting all the time in the seventies and eighties, it was all taken care of mostly on the ice, unless you almost decapitated somebody. And then they started bringing suspensions in, hoping that the league would serve the justice, right? Not, it wouldn't be served on the ice, but just that incident last night, I don't care. I don't care if one of my guys gets a two game suspension for being the instigator of the fight. And I wouldn't even care if the guy that on my team that went after him got beat, beat up. But show up. Don't leave it up to the league. I mean, that was, I just questioned their character. I, you know, under Babcock, you know, his Detroit teams were famous for not fighting and taking penalties. But, you know, Keith, he come up with a different strain. I, I don't know. I'd have liked him inside the coach's room having a beer with those guys last night and see what they really thought of that. Or but Keith. let's go back. You, you say this has been the way it's been in hockey forever. And I, I think you're right. And I think the reason, and I go back and I say, because hockey forever has shown an inability or unwillingness to police itself from the front office. They've decided we would rather let stuff go. And then if you're a player on the ice, you say, well, if the NHL is not going to take care of this, then we have to. And I mean, you go back, Don, 
to, I mean, uh, people forget the Rocket Richard riots get kind of glamorized every year when we come to the anniversary. We talk, well, the, you know, Maurice Richard was such a fiery competitor that he got, he started a riot. He started a riot because he clubbed a player on the Boston Bruins over the head with his stick. And then when the ref, when the linesman tried to corral him, he punched the linesman in the face twice, knocking him unconscious. And what he got for that was that the NHL came down hard considering he got suspended for the rest of the playoffs. Nowadays, I don't know what the NHL, well, if you punch the linesman, you're probably gone for the rest of your life. But in the NHL, it has always been that they come down very lightly on players for behavior on the ice. So you have to police yourself. You have to, because you're not believing the NHL is going to do it. Well, it didn't happen last night, did it? Right? Say that again? The Leafs didn't do anything about it. I said no. it didn't happen last night. The Toronto Maple Leafs give them a free pass. Yep, yep. And and I wonder now, you know, two games, I don't know if the Leafs feel like that was ex, ex, an acceptable penalty or not, and we'll find out tomorrow night when they play. Because all of a sudden tomorrow, if Wayne Simmons comes out, who's kind of the Leafs' tough guy, and if he comes out and tries to start a fight with someone right away, you'll probably get the sense that, no, they didn't think it was acceptable. And if they just play the game and don't fight anybody or don't hit anybody, you'll think, well, I guess they figured two games was sufficient. But, yeah, but what's the point? Go after the guy that did it. Except Simmons he's suspended now. No, but Simmons could have went on the ice the next shift. He could have, he, I mean, he could have sent uh, Simmons out to line up against that guy the next shift. And straight Except he was already out of the game. That's the problem. So you couldn't have got to that guy. So it's who else are oh, you going to... Oh, right. Yes, he got the game misconduct, right. Yeah, so who else are you going to go after? And so, you yeah. know, we'll see. I, I, I will say this. We've got to go to a break. I do think the chances, even though... And here's, here's the other thing. Vancouver's not going to make the playoffs. And so they've got, I mean, they're just playing for house money right now. It's, you know, do you really want to send a guy like Wayne Simmons to go and get into a dust up with this guy in the next game who's wearing a visor and a helmet and potentially break his hand that he broke already again? Is it worthwhile? You know, because I think Absolutely. somebody probably, I think somebody probably goes after Edler next game that he, they play against each other. But, you know, what happens if Simmons goes and breaks his hand on the guy's helmet again and you lose him? Well, now what have you accomplished? Now you've, you've, you know, now you've lost a key guy that you're really relying on for the playoffs. And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting one. I just, I just wish, and I've said this before, and I think I said it before to you, I wish the NHL once when they hire somebody to be the head of discipline would not hire someone who was a player and probably a player who was a tough guy player who has a soft spot for that kind of player. I wish that the NHL would hire somebody who hasn't necessarily played, but can look at this from a distance dispassionately and say, you know what, that right there, that's a five game suspension or that's an eight game suspension or something rather than doing nothing and forcing players to police themselves. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Tonight, Patrick Marlowe is going to become the NHL's all times game played leader. He's going to pass Gordy Howe when he plays his 1,768th regular season game. And yet, I got to tell you, I feel when Cal Ripken Jr. set his record for most consecutive games played, that was a huge moment and there was a lot of excitement. I feel nothing about Patrick Marlowe passing this record because I don't think it's a legitimate record. But are, are you excited about this? What do you mean? You know, what, uh, No, I'm not excited about it. 
Why is it not a legitimate? Because Gordy Howe played 400 and some games in WHA. Right. And, and, and played him at a high okay. level. So, so you're, yes, I know it's not the NHL. He went to the WHA, but it was a first level pro league that Gordy Howe continued to play in, in his forties. And to me, you know, somehow this is, I mean, look, I got nothing against Patrick Marlowe from everything that everybody says. He's a wonderful guy. He's a great human being. He's a good teammate, all the rest of the stuff. But this sort of is suggesting that he's becoming the equal of Gordie Howe as far as longevity. And he's got another at least five full years playing every single game in order to match that, in my mind. Yeah, well, to compare him to to Gordie Howe is like comparing your goaltending abilities to one of the great goalers of all time, Johnny Bauer. There's no comparison. And anybody that compares Marlowe to Gordie Howe doesn't understand the game. Or doesn't respect the game, you know. Marlowe's played a long time. I mean, he's not he's he's not a shabby player. He's won two gold medals, but you know what? He get he gets the ribbon because everybody gets a ribbon nowadays if you put on a pair of skates or go on a track meet. But he gets the ribbon for longevity, and that's okay. The fact that he played uh, in more NHL games than Gordy Howe, good for him. He's no Gordy Howe. He'll never be Gordy Howe. And I don't even think he thinks he's Gordy Howe. And he's probably embarrassed to a certain extent that he's going to play more games. I thought what would, would have been really cool is if he'd have had the respect to retire the game before he tied him. That would have been classy because he's got like four games or four goals this year. So he's, he's at the end. But to, pardon me, to compare him to Gordy Howe was is is foolhardy he's not i'm sure he doesn't think he is he's played a lot of hockey games and again you got to throw in the throw in the wha game scott and think about how many years gordy howe didn't play i mean he went back to the wha and then played some played some games with number 16 on the uh on the left side bobby hall in hartford i mean they both played on the same nhl team uh you know, Bobby Hall didn't play as long, but he added some games there. Gordy Howe was retired for a while, but I think that to anybody that tries to compare them as hockey players, I, it doesn't make any sense because they're not in the same league. Gordy Howe was one of the best hockey players to ever set foot on the planet, and Marlowe will never be in that conversation. Well, here's he the here's a lot of hockey games. Here's the numbers that that I found so staggering that makes this comparison to me. And, and, you know, look, this, this whole, this whole lead in has been about Marlowe and how Marlowe and how, because of that number, but did Gordie Howe stop playing for the Detroit Red Wings after the 71 season? He didn't play in 71, 72 or 72, 73 comes back, as you say, to play in the WHA. And then in his next year, so he's now well into his forties. Scores 31, 34, 32, 24, 34, 19, 15 goals, right? So he was still a very, very good player, even as his hair was fully gray and he was by far the oldest guy in that league. And as you point out, like, this is not a diss on Marlowe, but at this point, it's just about, you know, if he hadn't played so long with the San Jose Sharks, who weren't looking for some reason to get some attention by keeping him around. Cause you got, you can't tell me there's not a guy in San Jose's system that could be more effective right now than Patrick Marlowe on the ice. They're doing him a favor to keep him around. They're doing them. It's self-serving. 
The only reason he's still in the lineup, I mean, they, they weren't even sure they wanted to keep him when the Leafs signed him. And then he bounced around a little bit and ended back up in San Jose. By all accounts, as you said, Scott, he's a great guy. But the San Jose Sharks, they're, they're cheating their fans by keeping them in the lineup because there should be a younger, a guy they can develop because they're not doing well. And it's all, you know, you can't take it away from Marlowe because playing that many games is a pretty tremendous accomplishment in a physical game, the fastest game in the world. But that's where it stops. People should not compare him to Gordie Howe. It's unfair. To Marlowe and Howe. Yeah, and, and I mean, the other comparison that has been brought up in the last few days is the Cal Ripken Jr. comparison because of the longevity. Well, that's, I mean, to me, it's very different. First of all, because Ripken, his his uh, record was in consecutive games, never missed a day. And he remained a very, very, very qualified and productive shortstop right up until the day that that record finally came to an end. I mean, he was not just filling a uniform. He was being a very good shortstop. Anyway, I just, I, I, I as I say, I, I'd like to be really excited about Patrick Marlowe getting this record today. Um, but I just, I, I can find nothing that is exciting about it. And, you know, maybe, look, maybe if there were fans in the stands and if San Jose was really buzzing and they were going to do a, but it, it, to me, this one seems, I don't know, this seems like getting the, I don't even know what award I could compare it to. It, it, it seems empty. It just, I mean, good for him for playing all those games, but empty. Fans in the stands wouldn't make a big difference. I don't think it, I mean, it's certainly not like Gretzky's farewell tour, right? I mean, Marlowe to play key games in Edmonton or Columbus leading up to this thing. I mean, do you think it would create much of a ripple in the building? I, I don't think so. And, and, uh, and take nothing away from me, please. You know how, how many? I mean, how many games uh, will he play tonight? How many will that be? I mean, uh, seventeen seven. What is it? Seventeen sixty-eight. I think is the number. I mean, and one other thing, just by comparison, Wayne Gretzky in his second last year. Now, and look, Wayne Gretzky was. I don't want to say he was a shell of himself at the end. Uh, he'd had some injuries, and he was definitely not the same player that he was. But we forget, it's very easy to forget, in Wayne Gretzky's last three seasons, yeah, his last year he only had 62 points, all right, which was not Wayne Gretzky-like. But the two years before that, he had 90 and 97 points. <laughs> like, he was still a, an exceptionally good, not Wayne Gretzky good, but a really good player, and decided, that's it, I'm not going to stick around and just keep adding points because I can get 50 a year for the next five years and go over the 3000 point mark or something. No, you're right. He, I don't think there was much doubt that he was leaving in 1999, uh, for a long time. He's just that way. Right. I mean, might have something to do with the number he wore. I'm not sure, but you know, you could just see it and he, you're right. He didn't want to drag it out. He didn't want to be Gordy Howe. But if you if he had wanted to, like he finished with eight hundred and ninety four goals, zero chance that if he sticks around for another couple of years, he doesn't get nine hundred and become the first player to hit nine hundred. He finished with nineteen hundred and sixty three assists. No chance if he sticks around for another year or two, he doesn't get two thousand assists and become the only player. And he finishes with twenty eight hundred and fifty seven points. No chance if he sticks around for say three years, he doesn't hit three thousand points. 
Like there was lots of reasons yeah. there that he might have wanted to just stay and keep picking up points here or there. But you know, anyway, I just uh, again, it sounds like I'm dumping on Marlow. I'm not. Uh, he seems like a wonderful guy. I just I find nothing in this record that the NHL is really trying to sell. I, I find nothing in it at all that that makes it sort of exciting. It's just he showed up. And, then, and that's nothing against him. And he, I, I say he's won two gold medals at the Olympics. He's, he's, he's a, he's been a great hockey player. He's been a contributor, but he's not Gordie Howe. And that comparison is unfair to both of them. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. You have been in hockey a long time. You've watched a million games and there is something that is done in hockey. Every game now, it seems by every team at every level, maybe not kids, but every elite level, OHL, AHL, NHL, probably senior hockey. And it's on a power play. Every time a player brings the puck up the ice, he does this drop pass back to a guy behind him that seems to achieve basically nothing now. Am I, is this, is this something that worked once and now has just been figured out by coaches or is this just someone's idea of something that they thought would work and just doesn't work at all? Or do you really buy into this idea of the drop pass move that happens time after time after time? Well, I'm going to prove to you why I only coach the Dundas Real McCoys with Ron Bernacki is because we've never done it. And I, for the life of me, can't figure it out. I would call it borderline insane because to me, what it does, I mean, sure. You're giving it to a guy that's, coming up the middle and he's probably flying but here's what you've done you've created a wall between the center ice line and basically the blue line and you have nine players lined up there like the other team got to go this is like shooting fish in a barrel there's nine players within a 15 foot wall how the hell are you going to get through them you're going to stick stick handler on your own guys and the other guys, and then you watch when they break up a play and everybody's going the other way. Look at the number of shorthanded goals. It's not a fluke. I don't get it. And the teams, the Leafs, the Leafs are doing it, and they continue to do it, and they've got, what, one power play in their last 50 tries? Hello, why don't we try yeah. something new? See, here's why I don't think it works, and I think it can work. I think the thought behind it is sound but i think so if the first player brings the puck up the ice and the idea here is you're supposed to back up the opposition they're backing up because you're carrying the puck and then all of a sudden you drop it back and because you no longer have the puck the opposition everyone stops backing up and now they're standing still and the guy behind as you say who now picks it up is coming full speed and because they're stationary he blows past them in theory it's a great idea the problem is if you drop the puck back 20 feet you might be able to make it work because now they've just stopped and at the same moment they're stopping the guy is blowing through them but you're seeing teams drop the puck back two full zones back into their own end and so by the time you've done that the other team now has time to readjust and get set for that and you're in my mind you're achieving nothing i i think the thought behind it is okay but the execution I don't even think the players, half of them, get why it doesn't work, and they keep doing this bad execution, and it makes no sense whatsoever to me. None. I, 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 for the life of me, have not seen it work effectively in a year and a half. 
I mean, once in a while, as a surprise tactic, maybe. But not on a regular basis. I mean, you'd may as well send out a, an SOS saying, here's what we're doing. Like, do you think there's one team the Leafs have played, for, for an example, because, you know, uh, most people see more of the Leafs than anybody else, think that it's been effective? I mean, it's not working because they can set up. It's like the left-wing lock. It's like the trap. I mean, I remember when we had Mark Juris. Juris, we'd go to Tilsonburg and they'd set up a trap. I said, all you have to do is make one successful pass and the trap's beat. Now, with Juris, he'd just go by two guys. I mean, he'd, they'd end up falling down watching him stick handle. But, you know, the trap is okay. But as soon as you figure out how to beat it, stop playing the trap. I mean, it's not well, just... Repeating a failure over and over again, expecting a different result is insanity. There's one other part about this that I really don't understand. And it's the fact that it seems as though with a lot of the teams and probably not the NHL guys, although we seem to see it a lot, it's supposed to be an option. I mean, in the NFL and the CFL, you have the option play. The ball gets snapped to the quarterback. He runs out to the outside. He can either keep the ball if it's open or if the outside guy is about to tackle him, right when he's about to tackle him, the quarterback dumps the ball off to a guy out wider who's now got a wide open lane. But the reason that works is because you don't know if the quarterback is going to keep the ball or pass the ball. In the NHL and a lot of the other leagues, especially with the Bulldogs, for example, what you're seeing is every single time the guy comes down to the far blue line, he passes it back. So there's no uncertainty if you had a bunch of these times where the player who was carrying it didn't pass it back but took it in now you might open it up where you now have the uncertainty and it sets it up but when you've done it every single time don no matter how open you are to continue carrying the puck in it just to me this is an idea that somebody had a good idea and worked on it for a while and you know like so many other things in sports everyone decided to imitate it without fully understanding what the heck they were doing or how to make it work like the team that they saw do it successfully. Well, the other challenge, Scott, is is that once you commit yourself to that play, once you put it back to the defenseman or the forward that's, that you trust to carry it through, he has absolutely no options other than if he can't get through, he can dump it in, and the only guy moving is him. Like, what are you going to do? Pass it to a guy at the blue line? Like, you don't have. Who's had to stop to stay onside? I was going to say you don't have anybody moving. Everybody is standing there like a statue. So there's no options if you can't stick handle through all the guys. The other guys pick it up and they dump it back in your end, or if you grab it, the offensive team, and you dump it into their zone. Just dump it into their zone. I don't even think dumping it into their zone is a good idea. I've never liked that idea. I've always told our guys, when we have the puck, take as long as you want to explain to me why we want to dump it in and give it to them. Like, if we got it and they haven't got it, they can't score on us. So if we have it for 60 minutes, they basically can't score. But you eliminate all your options with that because of that guy coming through the middle and it doesn't work, you're done. Start over. And back they go. And the Leafs are one and I think 1,700 on the power play right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to, I'm glad to know that, uh, that, uh, you know, you also share the frustration and not just with the Leafs. I mean, most teams, most teams in the NHL do it and few do it with any kind of success because they just don't, 
as I say, even if technically it has the potential to work, it's the execution that is so poor that you look at and you go, well, if you don't understand what you're doing, then, you know, you shouldn't be doing something if you don't get why it's not working. If you're passing it all the way back from the other team's blue line into your end and you don't understand why that is a non-help, then you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be doing it. Um, well, they're doing you know. They're doing it because they're told to do it. Yes, yes, of course. There's, I mean, there's, there's better ways to do it. And I'm sure we've talked about this. If the other team basically know there's a 90% chance that's what you're going to do and it's not working against you, let them keep trying to do it. I mean, it's a great, Don, it's a great penalty killer. We, we got to go here, but your, your point is very good. If the other team knows you're going to do it, they are prepared for it. So you can, when you said the element of surprise, you can then catch them off guard by not doing it and skating into their end or banking it off the boards and going by them because they've stopped waiting for the pass back. And all you have to do is do that a few times and create that uncertainty. And now both of your options might work, but they don't do that. They, it's, it's like they're automatons. They're literalists. They, they've been told we're going to pass it back. And so darn it, we're passing it back no matter what. That's what I see. We know it's not working but that's what we practice. So we're going to keep doing it. What do you think? Send me a note. I'd love to hear if you guys listening and you girls and women and folks listening, share the same view of this, because it does seem to be one of the things in hockey right now that is making people, they either think it's great strategy or they want to pull out their hair when they see it because they think it's stupid. Radley at 900chml.com. I would love to hear from you. If this is something that you have noticed and wondered about and wondered why they aren't smarter because hockey coaches and players are generally pretty smart. Doesn't seem like it with this though. Don Robertson, always appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for doing this Monday night. Really, uh, really appreciate you doing it. It was fun, Scott. Have a good week. Thanks a lot for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.